Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, world. Are you ready to hear about some women you probably don't know about because history likes to fuck women over and not put them in their books? I hope you are because here at Whining About Herstory, we're going to tell you stories about some badass women that you probably haven't heard of while having a glass of wine. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. I, lo- I love you're just diving right into it. You're like, history fucks women over, so here we are. Here we are. <laughs> this is happening. We're doing this. Oh my God. It's weird. We just said this last week, but I feel like we haven't recorded in a while. I don't know why. It's because... Every time we've tried to record our video episode, it, it just goes terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah, I... So it feels like we haven't done anything. I... Yeah, it almost feels like every time we've recorded, it's been a waste, even though we can still use the audio. I blame the boys. Because they changed out the camera and... Yeah, okay. None of us knew... Well... For anyone no who doesn't know... No one knew or remembered that apparently you can only record in 30 minute. This camera only records for 30 minute increments. Which I'm like, what recording piece of technology cuts off after 30 minutes unless it's zoom when you're using a free trial and even they give you like what 45 minutes to an hour yeah like what the fuck support us on patreon for as little as one dollar and we'll get a new camera yeah please because what kind of bullshit is that i wouldn't even think to check and see Mm -hmm. how long a camera would record at any given time i know and that's why i was like why is it only 30 minutes and then we were talking to my husband justin who's like our tech guy and he goes Oh, yeah. And I was like, don't say it. He's like, that one only records for 30 minutes at a time. Why? That is the (laughs) dumbest shit I have ever heard. So for our patrons who are wondering why our video is late, and for our normal listeners that are wondering why we've had like two audio episodes where it sounds like we're doing a video in a row, it's because we have literally done multiple video episodes that just have not actually recorded past 30 minutes because fuck us, I guess. Right. Ugh, it's frustrating. So but we're, ta- we're taking a break from that this week because we're just like, no. Yeah. Pajamas start to get less comfy after three weeks. It's like, you know, okay. Do you remember like when you first start working from home and you're like sweats and jammies and then after a while you feel like, I don't know, gross because you haven't worn anything but fleece for three weeks? That's how I feel right now about my onesies, which is tragic because I love those onesies. And that camera has ruined my relationship with those onesies for at least three weeks. But it's fine because we're back with a normal episode and still some badass women. Heck yeah. And some cool fucking wine. And actually, this wine is super on brand for us. Uh, so it's my wine this week is a is Penelope, a Brut Rosé. Mm. And I literally picked it because it's named after a woman. I should have opened that pre-recording. That's okay. It's, it's a cool It's sound. not a beer, guys. It's a energy iced tea because I'm tired (laughs) um and I literally picked it because it has a woman on the label who's standing like thigh deep in a river fishing and I'm just like that like that's where we're headed that is where I want to be right now in a river not not really fishing but like floating down the river or canoeing or swimming something so but then I read the back and I was like oh my god this wine chose me I didn't choose the wine it chose me so uh, this is Penelope, a California sparkling wine. This is from my Naked Wines Angel Box. Yeah. And it says, I dedicate this series to the lineage of women that shaped me. I was lucky to grow up with two great-grandmothers, two grandmothers, my mom, my great-aunts, and my dear sister. 
They all worked hard raising families, running businesses, and following their muses, even when it took them down paths normally reserved for men. Their strong, adventurous spirits are always with me, whether I'm setting a table or negotiating a deal with my grape growers. And you know how, you know, savvy grape growers are. They've got, uh, what do you call them? Grapes. Huevos. On the vine. (laughs) They got big grapes on them. I know they'd be proud that I am giving the sparkling world a run for its money with this refreshing fruit-forward wine, thanks to the support of my angels. That's us. Let's raise a glass to honor these amazing unsung legends. And this is from Penelope Gad Coster. Also, I love that she named the wine after herself. You get it, girl. Your name deserves to be remembered and drunk. So I'm excited for this. What should we cheers to? To Penelope and just fucking rocking That was, it. yeah, that was such a beautifully on-brand wine. Cheers, Penelope. Cheers. And to the women that have come before us, yes. as Yes. Hmm. I actually like this. I can't drink a lot of it because it's carbonated. Yeah. I, uh, but I, it is really good. I poured you a very shallow glass and then a helicopter flew into yeah, it. And then I poured myself a little bit more, but it's fine. Not a real helicopter, guys, like those little seed helicopters, because they are everywhere. It's the best thing. I don't have a tree in my yard, but my neighbors have a giant tree that is just fucking full of them. And half of it hangs into my yard. So my yard is just helicopters right now. Oh, yeah. No, that I have one big tree in my yard, but the majority of my yard is covered by trees from neighbors. And so 90% of the leaves that fall in my yard every year are not even mine. Same with le- yeah, leaves, helicopters. Yes. All the bullshit. It's dumb. I'm like, when I rake in the fall, I'm like, it's not even my tree. (laughs) Oh my God. Do you ever like go for a walk and you see that someone didn't pick up their dog's poop and you're like, I should pick that up and like be a good person, but that's not even my dog's poop. And now I even want to pick up my own dog's poop. Yeah, but I do. Oh my God. The other day I took story time. I took uh, the two cheese to the park for a walk and all of this decided to happen at the same time. One of the cheese pooped and there were dogs coming from all of their directions. So he was barking at all the other dogs and I was trying to pick up his poop and get him like con- under control at the same time. And then I look over and the other chi has slipped out of his harness because even though it's extra small and the tightest it can be, he can still Houdini his way out of there if he really wants to. So then I'm trying to grab him while controlling my other dog and picking up poop and keeping them from stepping in the poop. I'm trying to get him back in his harness and there's barking and there's poop and it's fucking nuts and i was like oh my god could everyone just get the fuck away from me and shut up for five minutes even though it was my dog that was barking like right. i was like could you shut up for five minutes and go away it's funny because but you your, don't go away pause of yelling for everyone to shut up i can hear atari barking. i know she's like yeah shut the fuck up no she's more like i'm deaf but i'm here guys yes I wonder if she does that just like, well, if I can't hear, maybe they can't hear me. So I need to be extra loud to make sure people know I'm here. That's kind of what I always wonder. She wasn't much of a barker like pre-becoming deaf. So that's what I think it is, is she's just letting everyone know she's here. It's like when you're wearing headphones and even though you can speak at the normal volume and everyone can hear you. Yeah, you yell because you have to hear yourself. All right. Well, I'm going first today. 
Yes. Aren't I? You are. All right. Um, so I'm really excited because I just kind of stumbled upon this person and I really didn't know what I was getting into. Um, but one of the elements of her legacy that I'll get into, I was like, oh, I got to cover this lady. Spoiler, she's on money. So I was like, I got to cover this lady. Oh. She's on money. And then I started doing the story and I was like, oh, wow, she's, no, I don't that, know. That sounds too well known. It's super not though. Like... <laughs> I suppose we've had other women, like one or two that have been, like, I feel like, I think it was... Viola Desmond. No, was it Valentina Tereshkova? She's on a stamp. She's the first woman in space. There was another woman that I covered that was on some type of money in some country. (laughs) We're so good at this, Emily. I know. It's, you know what, we've covered so many women, it's just... You know, I could probably just Google women on money and it would probably be a fairly short list we covered viola desmond and she's on canadian money i was like i get that i don't know what japanese money looks like but you'd think i'd like have some kind of inkling of canadian money so they're doing a series of quarters i don't know what it is about but i saw um but it's gonna have like harriet tubman and like a bunch of other women and they're going to put them on quarters. Oh, see, I thought they were going to put Harriet Tubman on, like, the $20 bill. Yeah, and then that went away. Yeah. Um, And actually, Biden is reviving that to put her back on the $20 bill. I heard about that. The interesting thing about that, and I'm not saying, like, I don't know how I feel about it. Because at first, I was like, get some women on some fucking money. Especially, like, Andrew Jackson sucks. Yeah. He was like, a no garbage one knows person. who he is. He was a garbage person, which is why we don't talk about him. Because he sucks. But... I've I've read some really compelling arguments uh, talking about how it's kind of fucked to put a woman who is a literal commodity in life on money and to like re like commoditize or that's not a word, but you know what I mean? And I was like, man, I never thought of that. And that's actually a really interesting perspective. I'm all for like making our money more representative of the people who actually helped build this country and make it what it is. Um, so there were good ways, but yeah, I get Apparently we did previously have women on currency, both Marsha Washington and Pocahontas had paper money at one point. Are you fucking serious? Um, What? But they weren't, neither were in circulation for more than a few years. That's like and the Sacagawea dollar. They were, yeah, they were considered commemorative bills. So in this study that I looked up, so they counted 196 countries that use paper money in some form. Of them, only 48, so less than a third, have women on their on their bills. And you have to remember, that's including Britain, where all their money is women. One God. woman, but still. Good grief. That's nuts. Yeah, we tried to kind of do that whole... um get more into like coin currency like because in the uk um you could have has four women oh go australia i mean one of them is queen elizabeth but is one of them mama meg no it's yes it's it's mama meg her daughters and queen elizabeth (laughs) (laughs) it should be um oh the dominican public 200 pesos is the mirabal sisters yes oh yeah, yeah yeah i think i knew that when we covered them isn't um, Sorwana on yep, money? Uh, Two hundred peso in Mexico is Sorwana. That's right. We've covered we've covered some uh, some money money ladies. We yeah. have money mavens, mothers of money. Yeah, there's not that like many, and like I said, Queen Elizabeth is 
like a chunk of them because there's, you know, various commonwealths of England that still use the pound. You know, it would be really cool if we did an episode where we cover women who share themes like the women we're covering today have both been on stamps or are on money or like have this commonality. Yeah, that'd be cool. And just kind of explore the, you know, from that framework. Because a lot of times when I do my Googling and like I'm trying to find new women to cover, I want to make sure that we cover women from all over the world. So sometimes I'm like, you know what, let, let me look at this part of the part of the globe this right. week. And that's kind yeah, of how cool. I guide a lot of my research. But doing something from that lens, like who are women on money that I should know about? How'd they get on money? And you know what? Today we're going to do that. For one of these ladies, because I am covering Ichio Higuchi, uh, also known as Natsuko Higuchi. And uh, she's on some Japanese money, y'all. 5,000 yen bill, bitch. It's also purple, just like Viola Desmond's. I'm like, I want to be on purple money. I want purple money. Like, people think we're so weird for not having colored money. I or agree. like I different. 10,000% agree. And it's like, oh, God, yeah, that is weird. Right. <laughs> So, Ichio Higuchi was born as Natsuko Higuchi on May 2nd, 1872 in Tokyo, Japan. And I will refer to her as Ichio because that is her, she's a writer and that is her pen name that she's most yeah. known by. That's fine. So, instead of, yeah, I just figure I call her the same name throughout the whole thing. Uh, now, this was during the Meiji era, which was a pretty wild time in Japan. And fans of the anime and manga Roroni Kenshin will recognize that because that's when that takes place too. The Meiji era, which spanned from 1868 to 1912, was the beginning of Japan's modernization from a feudal society. And we've talked about that, like with the shoguns and the samurai and the daimyos and all that, and transforming into a modern superpower. And this is actually when they became the Empire of Japan which they would be until World War II. Right. And then they just became like chill Japan. <laughs> so it also meant that the militaristic shoguns were no longer in charge. Instead, a new government began running the show. And this was also at the time there was like some Western influence and they were really vulnerable to colonization. I shouldn't say vulnerable because it makes it sound like it's their fault, but you know what I mean? Like the West was trying to break in and like take over and modernize them. And they're like, no, we're going to do it ourselves. Fuck off. So like most transitional periods, it was exciting, but also super messy. You know, it's society is so complicated, especially when there are a lot of cultural and, you know, societal and governmental shifts. It's, you know, it's messy. Yeah. Uh, It was this world that Ichio was born into. She was the daughter of a samurai. And despite this otherwise prestigious title, which I guess he earned in 1867, just before the Meiji era and before the samurai were abolished. Like he, he, it's like he's working. He just became president of Enron and then Enron hit the fan, you know, like, oh, you became a samurai, but they're not a thing anymore. And fuck you. Um, her family lived okay though. Uh, not great, but okay. I read in one place our government or her father had become like a low ranking government official. So they were like, kind of like in the like lower, I would say like lower middle class, like upper lower class kind of in that area. Uh, but growing up in a samurai household was still very impactful for Ichio as a child. So Ichio was able to attend Haganoya Poetry Academy, which was founded by Uta. 
Utako Nakajima, uh, a female poet, and she actually worked in like Edo Castle and was like a really big fucking deal. And there, Ichio studied poetry and classical literature. And I kept trying to figure out why she got to go to this school or how she could afford it uh, because this was a very prestigious place. I couldn't find any information about that or even like why she went. Like, was she interested in it? I couldn't find any information, but she went to this place and it was a big deal. Now, you'd think that everyone at a poetry academy is a total fucking nerd, but Ichio actually stuck out among her peers. So unlike them, she didn't come from an upper-class family, and she was nearsighted, short, and very, very timid. And I never saw any images of her wearing glasses, but I'm imagining her like the typical nerd with like the big, thick glasses, braces, meekly cut, clutching her textbooks, like her glasses keep sliding down her face, and she's like scurrying through the halls. And her peers were a mix of old school nobles, so like children of shogun and members of the royal court, and the new privileged class, so children of statesmen, politicians, and military officials. So whether they were coming from like old money or new money, they were all big deals. And yeah. then she's just this like rando kid who's very shy, doesn't like really stand out. She doesn't wear the nicest clothes. And so she's kind of an outcast. Yeah. This dynamic amongst her peers contributed to Ichio struggling with feelings of social inferiority. Well, yeah, I'm sure like inadequacy. I'm sure she felt um, like imposter syndrome. Like, why am I here? Yeah, yeah. But it also gave her like this interesting perspective on the children of the old world big shots and the children of the new world big shots and how they were mingling. And then also how she didn't fit in with either of them, which again is kind of part of that messy, messy transition period. There are people who are left behind. There are people who are advancing. And then there are the people who like don't really even fit into either of those dynamics who just fall down the middle of the funnel, you know? So when her father died of tuberculosis in 1889, Ichio became the primary supporter for her mother and the rest of her family, which afforded her many opportunities for hardship. And like the women of her family started doing like needlework and stuff to try to raise money for the, you know, for themselves. But because she's nearsighted, she sucks at that shit. Right. (laughs) So a former classmate of Ichio's made it big by publishing fiction, which inspired her to pursue writing to earn money for her own family. And she began writing under the pen name Ichio Higuchi. So shortly after this, in 1891, Ichio met Nakarai Tosui, uh, a novelist who became a significant influence on her. So in fact, Ichio kept a diary from 1891 to 1896, which is, let me see, five years and 364 days longer than I've ever been able to consistently keep a diary. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she wrote extensively of Nakarai during this time. And the diary was actually later published under the title Wakabakage, which is uh, in the shade of spring leaves, which I'm like, that sounds beautiful. And that's actually like the season we're in right now. Um, So though Nakarai was influential, Ichio ignored his primary piece of advice, which was to use like colloquial language in her writing. Nakarai himself wrote works that had a popular appeal and were meant to sell. So he was kind of like 50 shades of gray while she's trying to write like the next great Japanese novel. Instead, Ichio had a more classical prose style, which was likely influenced from her time studying classical literature at the super elite poetry school. 
So Nakurai didn't just influence Ichio's writing, but she was also in love with him because God forbid this is just like super drama free. Nakurai had a reputation as a womanizer, but he didn't show like any interest in Ichio where it's like, that's, that's almost got to be a weird hit to your self-esteem. You're in love with this guy who like goes after every woman he meets except for you. Like, yeah. Um, So he was more of a mentor or a brotherly figure to her. However, their close relationship would also result in rumors and scandal as it was seen as improper for an unrelated, unmarried man and woman to have a close relationship. He was also like in his 30s and she was, I think, maybe 18, early 20s around this time. So that age gap was also like people were like, like gasp, scandal. Um, And it was this drama that would eventually lead to the end of their relationship their mentor mentee the piner piney but this unrequited love would become a theme in Ichio's writing so a lot of her plots involved love triangles or unrequited love and that kind of thing so Ichio's first big break was when one of her stories was published in a small newspaper. However, it wasn't like her strongest work. Her writing was heavily influenced by her early training in the classics and displayed little plot and character development. And this wasn't necessarily out of inexperience as these stories were a vastly different style from what she was writing in her diary at the same time. So you can compare those early works with her diary that she was keeping at the same time and be like, who the fuck wrote these two things? The diary is like way better because it seems like she was kind of trying to show off her classic classical training. And like, I don't know. And maybe this is just me projecting, but I was like, I bet she's trying to sound like she knows what she's doing, you know, like this, these great works of the past, you know, and she's trying to emulate them. And while the style's the same, she's lacking like, the, the meat yeah, of the plot the, the and the content characters. And, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Ichio soon found her voice and the merit of her writing began to be recognized. So she kind of started to like grow into herself. And I think she started becoming more honest with herself in her writing. And instead of trying to write what she thought people wanted, she started being more honest and writing like what she thought was good. Interestingly enough, her story Umoregi, also meaning in obscurity, was published in a prestigious journal, Miyako Nohana, in 1892, signaling her status as a professional writer. So, like, she'd been published in some, like, little newspapers and journals, but then she, like, was published in one that people had heard of that was a bigger deal. And I thought it was funny, like, her first really big one was called In Obscurity. I love that. Yeah, girl. It's like titling your first big story, no one's going to read this, which honestly is the clickbaitiest title ever, and I call it, I call dibs, TM, TM, TM. Her writing often tackled issues she witnessed in the Meiji era, primarily how the middle class was victimizing the poor. This made me think back to um, Noe Ito, who I covered in episode 61. So seriously, go listen to it. She was a badass. So she was a prominent women's activist who grew up in the Meiji era. Uh, She was born like 20 or 30 years after uh, Ichio here. But uh, she spoke out about how women weren't afforded many opportunities to work or to get educations or find employment. And then they would have to turn to sex work to survive and then were persecuted for that sex work because you should just fucking die, I guess. Right. Like, ah, it's frustrating. 
But similar storylines often appeared in Ichio's work. She would write about poor, unhappy women who were forced to become courtesans and mistresses to survive. She explored themes like having the strength to survive, but also reconciling who you are with what you have to do. So it's kind of like being put in a position where it's like, this isn't who I am, but this is what I have to do and what I have to be at certain times to survive. And, you know, just kind of like those tough choices you make where it's like, am I just going to die or am I going to live? And unfortunately, these are my options, you know. Uh, Ichio's perspective on this also makes sense considering that she was an outcast among her school peers of old money and new money. So despite her success as a writer, Ichio and her family still struggled to make ends meet. They eventually moved to a poor neighborhood that was just on the outskirts of Tokyo's lovely and super not shady red light district. Happen in place. Yeah, that's fun. It's just Starbucks now. It's a it's just a giant Starbucks now. <laughs> yep. So this influenced one of her most notable works, Takekurabe, uh, which translates to comparing heights. It's also known as child's play, not the Chucky movie. It's like infinitely sadder. Um, so this describes it's less murdery, more depressing. Yeah, depression. it's just like straight up cry fuel oh fun yeah it's just like ugly cry fuel so this work describes children growing up on the fringes of the red light district sound familiar uh the protagonist a teenage girl is in love with the son of a priest but the influence of her surroundings result in her having to become a courtesan it explores the horrors of the main character being a child dealing with very adult issues and just straight up abuse with her wanting a childhood and being refused one and also having her dreams of marrying the priest's son being denied because she is punished for being sex trafficked. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, because she's like, I think, 13 or 14. Um, I also thought it was interesting that she's pining for the priest's son. And they're playmates. Like, they're growing up together. And so they come together and they, like, play in their neighborhood or whatever. But then they have these very different lives. And him being a priest's son, like pillar of virtue and she's kind of pining for that but she is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum as far as society views her by being a courtesan and as we know now a sex trafficking victim yeah you know so tackling these topics was groundbreaking for the time and was highly controversial to a society that was unwilling to look at its own flaws and i got the impression like i'm not a scholar of the meiji era but this was just my impression japan is working on modernizing it's starting to become a a bigger player on the global stage like this is this is them getting ready to like become a global superpower you know and Everything's bright. They're looking towards the future. They're ready to leave the past behind. And the social issues that existed before and exist now and are not being addressed don't align with that whole like bigger, better, brighter attitude that everyone has. And so there's this big urge to ignore it. It's like, no, 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 we're fine. Everything's fine. If they're doing badly, it's their own fault. It's because they have some kind of moral deficit. Yep. And again, I'm not trying to like rag on Japan. I feel like every society does this, but I'm going to call it out when I see it. Okay. Um, And it actually, so it wasn't until after World War II that this novel reached renewed interest. 
because that was at a time where Japan like really looked inward. They're like, oh my God, we got to fucking deal with some shit. Yeah. Uh, and un- unfortunately, like they had just been, they'd been ravaged by war. The world had been ravaged by war. They'd been ravaged by the atomic bombs. And it was just this real like big, oh, like I, I can't even imagine. Like I can't even put into words. But that was when they were kind of more willing to look at these social issues. So Ichio was not afraid to tackle the issues which women who were not blessed with money or status faced, obviously. Right. Uh, Ichio's notoriety began to grow and she was praised for her writing and editors and other writers began asking to collaborate with her. I mean, that's good because sometimes you get the opposite when people start calling out those societal things. Like people yeah. are like, no, we need to shun her. So yeah. it's, it's good to see that. You know, people are like, hey, your work's great. Like, let's do things. Well, and even though that work was very controversial, it's um, it's kind of considered, like, if you're going to read anything by her, that's it. Yeah. And it actually came out uh, in, like, chapters in a magazine. Like, hmm. I think it was, like, either week by week or month by month or however frequently the publication was. So I I couldn't find it all together. I couldn't find any of it. I would love to read it because I think that would just be a really fascinating look into this period of time, this area, area and like these specific issues. Like, I don't know, like just diving into this very specific point in time. So if anyone like has the English translation, please send right, it let to us me. know. I'm, I'm really disappointed. I couldn't find any of her works. I was actually, there's an anime character who's named after her from, uh, oh God, what is it called? It's like Bungo Dogs or something. It's an anime and manga. Uh, and that complicated my research a bit because <laughs> I like Googled her and I was like, what the fuck is this? Right. So ju- just as Ichio's star was beginning to rise, it all came crashing down. Ichio suffered from frequent and severe migraines, which forced her to stop writing. Oh, that's terrible. Then, just as her father before her, and actually like several of her brothers also, Ichio contracted and died of tuberculosis on November 23rd, 1896. She was only 24 years old. So... This is definitely someone who was really just starting to rev up. They were really just hitting their stride and then they died. And I don't, I did not choose a story where the person died suddenly, but I feel like it keeps happening to me. (laughs) And then they died. Right. I mean, I've gotten that too. Uh, So legacy. So like a falling star, Ichio's legacy has streaked across the sky. Most notably in 2004, Ichio's put on the 5,000 yen, no girl, make it rain. This made her the third woman to appear on Japanese money. Go girl. I think I covered one of them actually when I covered the uh, Onobu Geisha. I think there was an empress that I touched on who is on money. Uh, But some of her most notable works have been made into movies and her work is seen as an incredible exploration of the Meiji period and the issues with which women in particular so that is Ichio Higuchi and there were some other details about her life that I left out because it was just like it didn't seem super relevant to the whole narrative but she like got engaged but the guy didn't want to be with her and like there was some weird like other relationship stuff I would love to read more about her because I had a hard time finding resources which I'm like 
this lady is on money. She must be like pretty, a pretty big deal. Why can't I find shit on her? Right. That's and maybe, insane. And maybe it's, she's a bigger deal in Japan. And we just like, I just don't have access to those resources. But yeah, that is uh, Ichio Higuchi, the 5,000 yen woman. <laughs> nice. Thank you. I, li- I liked that ending. Yeah. Well, because she can't be a $6 million woman because, you know, women make 73 cents on the dollar that men do. I don't know. God, I wonder how that translates. Like, first you got to do yen into dollars and then inflation and then math. Lots of math. None of which I'm willing to do. You guys can. Go have fun with it. If you're a teacher, give that assignment to your students. (laughs) So, Kelly, who are you whining about today? Today, I am whining about Andre or Andre. I don't actually know how to pronounce her name. I didn't look it up. It's French. Actually, Ooh. it's Belgian. Okay. Um, Andre or Didi Dejon. Dejon. J O N G H. Oh, I I was thinking like Dijon, like no, spicy de, mustard, like D E. Okay. Jean. Andre de Jean. Yeah. Or Didi. Or Didi. I'm going to call her Didi. I like that. Didi. So she was born in Cherbique, Belgium. I'm really sorry, Bel- Belgian. Wait, really quick. People. How good is your Dexter imp- impression? Not great. Didi. No, I can't. <laughs> God. Get out of my laboratory. <laughs> oh, what, what was it? Uh, was it... Um. Oh, when is he when he speaks French? I was just, I had stuck in my head the other day. It was like Le du fromage. He makes his cheese. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh no, wait. Uh omelette yeah. de uh, fr- du uh, fromage. Yeah. Omelette du fromage. Omelette which means du- omelette with cheese. Yes. Cheese omelette. Yes. All right. Um so, 90 nostalgia for all of you guys. <laughs> so she was born um while Belgium was under the German occupation during World War One. Oh shit. So that's what she's born into. Every time we cover people whose stories span from like World War One to World War Two, like uh, Emilienne Moreau, I'm like, can you imagine going through that? And then it happens again. And you're just like, what the actual fuck? Right. Can you even? It's like if three years from now we had another pandemic, like seriously, again, <laughs> are we doing this? Right. Fucking at least we are we all got our masks, I guess. Yeah, keep those things yeah. just in case. Um, so her father was named Frederick, and he was the headmaster of, of the school in the town, and her mother was Alice. Love that name. So in Sharbeek, where she lived, um, a woman named Edith Cavill, who was a British nurse, was shot in the Tur National, which is like a building in, in the town where she grew up in 1915 for assisting troops to escape from occupied Belgium into Nether- the Netherlands, which was neutral. Oh. So this happened in her town. And so this, so Edith Cavill really became like her, like this heroine for her. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the right word. Yeah. Yeah. She was like this, uh, I know local but I, legend. I drugs cause I, I have a drug <laughs> class and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. I'm like, no, that's the word. She became literal heroine. Right. It, it's so weird how that word changes depending yeah. on if you put an well, A before spelled, it yeah, or it's not. Spelled different. Oh, is it? H E R O I N E. Which one is that? That that's like Lady Hero, right? H e r o i n e s. Okay, how Lady do you spell hero. heroin? Like the drug H e r o i n. Yeah. Oh, so it's just the e. Yeah. 
If there's an E, it's it's a good woman. If there's no E, it's a drug. Oh my God. I need to be very careful about my spelling because I didn't realize you spelled those differently. That's funny. Anyways, so with Edith as kind of a backdrop for what she wants to be, um, Dee Dee started training as a nurse. Oh my God. Because that's what Edith was. Like the, this poor woman, this poor woman, she's serving in World War One. She's trying to help some people and she is, she's killed in action. Yeah. But then like the fact that that inspired someone else to like try to be a good person right. and like a hero too is like, I would, it's bittersweet. Right. So during this time, she was also a commer- commercial artist to kind of like make a living. Um, so as she's studying to be a nurse, when she's 23 years old, the Germans invade Belgium again. She's like, bitch, I'm ready for this. I was almost hoping you'd come back because I want to fuck y'all up. Also, how often do we hear that someone was an artist put to put themselves through nursing school? Usually it's like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm nursing to put myself through art school. I did say she was a commercial artist. I'm assuming she like worked for a company doing art. Yeah, but but still like. I mean, it's France. They're very into the arts. They're, they're very artistic. They're very in tune with their artistic natures and their berets. So just to kind of set the scene for what's going to happen, I'm going to, I'm going to give a description of her that was given by someone else. So she's a frail young woman who appears about 20 years old, very pretty, pleasant, kind, cheerful, and simple. She seems to have a carelessness of a young student who would go on vacation after passing her exams. So that's how she looks from the outside. She's, she's 23 like a, at she's the time. She's like a cute, normal girl. Right. She's 23 at the time. She looks younger. So that this is who we're dealing with. So when Belgium got invaded, she moved to Brussels, which is, I believe, the capital of Belgium. Yes. Also, the capital of uh, Brussels sprouts, its number one export is sadness and bad taste. (laughs) Um, So when she got to Brussels, she became a Red Cross volunteer for the army, particularly focused on um, helping captured allied troops that were coming back. So at this time in Brussels, there were a lot of British, British soldiers in particular, but allied troops hiding in safe houses within Brussels because... It hadn't been German occupied, and now it was. And they all had to like exactly duck and cover exactly. So there's a bunch of British soldiers, and that's kind of who she's helping. Are these British soldiers that aren't supposed to be there and would just become prisoners of war? I was gonna say they're like trapped behind what has now become enemy lines, right? So she would go on to organize a series of safe houses for these soldiers. Um, and procure civilian clothes and ID papers for them so they could kind of like blend in. She would visit the sick and wounded, um, and this enabled her to really kind of make links and really make a network out of these the keepers of these safe houses so that she could essentially like form a train to get these soldiers out of Belgium to try and get them home. Would you describe as perhaps a railroad of some sort? <laughs> I'm sorry, you said the word I know, train, I and know. I was like, <gasps> so in spring of 1941, so it's been about a year since Belgium was occupied. Henri de Blicky, Arnold de Pepe, and Didi really set about organizing this network Didi had been creating, and were helping Allied soldiers and airmen escape occupied Belgium into into Great Britain, or returning to Great Britain. Because that was a really big one, like the airmen that would fly over when they would get in those battles. Like, 
they would just end up in like random countries and well, then they had to find their way down. home. Exactly. It's not like you can just like catch a real good gust of wind with your parachute and fly back home. Right. So this network that Didi had been creating became known as the Comet Line and became the largest of the escape and evasion lines in World War II. The Comet Line. I, yep. I love that. So they initially had called themselves the DDDs after their last names. Even though oh. one of them was a B, so I don't know why it was the DDDs. It's so, that, it's so they're off the Germans. No, it can't be these three people because one of their last names is a B, so that doesn't check out. Right. <laughs> um, unfortunately, later that year, Henri was captured and executed mm. um, when their group was infiltrated by a, uh, a Belgian that was working with the Germans, but Dick. only he was captured. But it's still sad. That's That's awful. Like, what a... What a horrifying world to live in where you like, you literally can't even trust the people you're working with yeah. like, or that might kill you. Right. But at the same time, you're put in the position where you have to like rely on some people in some instances. And anytime you do, you never know. Yeah. It's like, really unfortunate. Oh, so much anxiety. So during this time when Didi is setting up the safe houses in Belgium, Arnold, the other one, the one that didn't get executed, started his journey, started toward from Belgium toward France kind of like make sure everything you know they had a way out mm-hmm. um because he was originally like from that area so he had like connections and he wanted to make sure like if they start sending soldiers that way they're not just immediately going to get captured by the germans right so, he's like a scout he's checking it out yep. beforehand so he's going down there and he makes contact with a woman named elvira de, de grief and her family and they became the family that actually helped people get across the belgium france border that's such a metal name, though. De Grief. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> and Elvira became known as Tante Go or Auntie Go. Mm. Yeah, I know, right? That is so cute. I know. I mean, like, okay, I, I shouldn't be calling the anything in this situation cute, but I love that. Right. So when Ar- Arnold returned, Didi and Arnold, um, assisted then by the Griefs, attempted their first crossing of the Spanish border in July of 1941. With them was 10 Belgians and a woman named Miss Richards, who supposedly was an English woman, but was actually a Belgian secret agent, which was found out like later that they were helping a Belgian secret agent escape. Oh, okay. So she On was- On their side. She was posing as an English woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. But she was a spy. I feel like- On the good side. I, I have to say though, I feel like either of those stories would kind of get you killed. Right. Like if you're in- I mean, maybe if she's posing as like an English civilian, like I just yeah. happen to be here. I'm not. Yeah. Like vacation or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so they successfully. So this group of 13 successfully crossed the Pyrenees Mountains because that's uh, France and Spain. That's yep. the border. So they crossed that. Did they sing the whole time with their like 80,000 children? Yes. No. <laughs> um, so when they got to the other side of the Pyrenees Mountain, Didi and Arnold left them to go back to Belgium to help more people. They were like, yeah. sorry guys, you got to fend for yourself, but you like, we got you in non-occupied far. territory now. Well, yeah. at the time, eventually France fell, but yeah, you know, I guess they were in Spain. I was going to say, I thought they were crossing to, to Spain. Um, so they, they were like, fend for yourselves. And they went back to Belgium. Unfortunately, they were arrested by Spanish police. Like, so that kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, and three of the Belgian soldiers were turned over 
to the Germans in France. Oh, fuck Spain. Come on. Um, and from this, uh, Didi realized that to really do this properly, they had to start establishing a relationship with the British consulate in Spain to ensure that once they got these people across the border, they would be safe. Yeah, that Spain wouldn't just be like, take them. I mean, I guess at least they only turned over three, but still. Still, like, I don't know. So in that August sucks. of that same year, they attempted another journey. Didi decided that they were going to take a longer, more rural route. You know, they were like, okay, we're not just going to go like straight up the mountain and straight down. Right. Um, and it would turn out to be a safer route. This time it was, um, she had three men, so they split up and Arnold, uh, took the shorter, what would be a more dangerous route with six men. So there's, okay. they're, they're leading two groups of people. Um, Unfortunately, an informer for the Germans uh, betrayed Arnold and his party, and they were all arrested. Fuck. Arnold would end up imprisoned for the rest of the war. Did did he survive, though? Yeah. Okay. He was not killed, and it didn't say what the pe- what happened to the people. Um, uh, that That's another thing. How, like, how much luck plays into this stuff, oh, yeah. where it's like, oh, you ended up with the group that just happened to get ratted on. Yeah. Sorry, you're dead now. Um, Didi did arrive safely to the to the grief household um, and crossed into Spain with um, a smuggler as a guide this time. She went to the British consulate um, with um, three soldiers um, and they and then she um, traveled by train um, or they had traveled by train to get to Bayonne and then on foot over the Pyrenees. To get to Spain. Okay. It's a whole thing. God, traveling is already such a nightmare, but then you have this looming idea of, like, you could be caught and murdered at literally any point. Well, and a lot of people didn't trust her at first. I mean, she's a little girl. So this is... this is a, Oh, I totally get that. <laughs> um, A quote. It's a, it's a longer quote, but I, I t- pulled it out of an article. So it's about a guy who... It's a... This is... Um, an airman got, you know, so he's hidden in a house right now. So it says, it says, um, hidden in a house in Brussels with two other rescued airmen midway through 1941, Newton, who was the airman that's telling the story Mm -hmm. was told of the comet escape line, a risky route being used to evacuate allied soldiers through the heart of occupied Europe from Belgium to France and then into neutral Spain. It was a journey of more than 600 miles involving long rides on German patrolled trains, stealthy border crossings, and a grueling nighttime trek over the Pyrenees Mountains. Dangerous, yes, but Newton and his compatriots would be personally escorted by the leader of the Comet Line, who was coming to meet them. Must be a quite a guy, remarked one of the air- <laughs> airmen, an Australian. I bet he's got some stories to tell. It was ingrained in these men, of course, to think that war... War as a men's work to be measured by success of what could be overpowered, which is why their hearts sank when a wispy woman strolled into the room. André de Jean had dark, fluffy hair, a pert mouth, and high-arching eyebrows. She wore a flower dress and white ankle socks. She was 24 but looked 18, weighing about 100 pounds. She seemed to take up no space at all. She introduced herself only as Didi, a nickname. Our lives, the Australian announced glumly after she left, depend on a schoolgirl. Can I just say, I have been imagining an Anna Kendrick-esque person this whole time. Just 
very tiny. That's exactly Very right. young looking. Yep. Just looks like, what's up, guys? Like, like almost, almost looking like a, just kind of like peppy and doesn't really know yeah. what's going so, I mean, on. She walked in in a flowered fucking dress. Yeah. But like, I just, I just love, like, I'm imagining Anna Kendrick stepping in like, let's do this. But like, <laughs> yeah. she's all, she's actually like super smart. But she's smart. really yeah. good. I want, okay. I want this movie. I want this movie about Dee Dee. And it has to be, be played Anna by Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. Yep. And she just has to be like all cutesy and peppy the whole time. She's like, we're going to climb these fucking mountain guys. Let's do this. Right. So. Not only were the airmen kind of suspicious of her, you know, when they met her, but when she got to the consulate this time, the British diplomats were real skeptical of her. It seemed super unlikely to them that three uh, a young woman with three soldiers in tow would somehow manage to travel through German-occupied Belgium, through occupied France, over the Pyrenees, and then into Spain to get to this consulate. Yeah. So they were like, eh, it's about five, it's about a 500 mile trek or 800 kilometers. She's like, where's Edward? And I worked with Edward before he knows me. That's a straight route. So 500 miles is the straight route. They took a roundabout route. So it was more than 500 miles. Oh my God. Can you imagine how many Pokemon eggs that you would hatch walking 500 miles? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so Dee Dee promised to get out as many British soldiers and airmen as she could if the British would pay the expenses of the Comet Line, which were about 6,000 Belgian francs um, at the time, uh, which was about $2,000 in U.S. dollars. At the time? Uh, no, in 2018. Oh, okay. So it would be about $2,000. So not that much. I was going to say, like, to save a bunch of people's lives, open up your uh, your bank books. Um, so it's $2,000 per soldier. Oh, but that's still, like, you're getting your men back. That's not that much money. I was going to say, like, how much money did you invest in training them? Okay, that's dark. Right. <laughs> I shouldn't be, like, doing the cost analysis of no. training soldiers and what their lives are worth. Can you imagine if, so, if someone... So, oh, that is someone's job, guaranteed. Oh, for sure. But can you imagine, like, $2,000 being all that's between you and living? And actually, I mean, it's a gamble. that's not all. Like, you have to cross two occupied countries know, and go over like, a mountain, but... It's it's still I don't know that that's but like, scary how pe- these yeah. people's lives are kind of monetized in that way when when the stakes could not be higher. Oh yeah, exactly. Like think about that. Like you're kidnapped, and it's like you pay me X amount of money or she dies. How much is your life worth? Yeah, if it was two thousand dollars and no one could pay it, I'd be like, thanks guys. Fuck me, I guess. Right. I guess I don't <laughs> want to be alive. Um. So. Dee ended up staying there for three weeks while the Spain, while Spain and English kind of hemmed and hawed, like, is she a German agent? Should we trust her? No, 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 She's a woman, I'm sure. I'm sure that came up at least once. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. She keeps breaking out into, like, acapella every now and then. And it's weird. <laughs> She's doing this thing with, with uh, solo cups that I don't trust. Right. <laughs> so eventually, the British agreed to her terms. Actually, they offered more. Mm. Um, but she turned down any other offer they had because she didn't want any advice or assistance and she didn't want either of the governments, British or Belgium, taking over the comet line. Smart. She knows if they if she's like, no, she pay our expenses yeah. and we'll get this shit done. She knows if they're getting more money, then they get more of a say. 
Oh yeah. They're they're buying control over the situation. Exactly. She's like, no, no, no. Well, I know they, what I'm wanted doing. to offer her like assistance, and it's like the more men you have on this, the more likely you are to get caught. Exactly. And so she was like, no, just you know, when I drop people off, you pay me. We're done. Yeah. Um. So obviously, when Arnold got arrested, which was the other partner, you know, that really added a, a note of caution. Dee Dee was the only original member left. Oh. Um, and she decided that it was unsafe for her to continue living in Belgium. So she started living and working, um, in Paris and Valencias, which are both, um, French cities, but they're on the border of Belgium. So she's still living and working in an occupied country, but their hold on France, like they, it was very different, like depending on what country you were in by occupied Germany, like how tight their restrictions were. And like, obviously they, you know, they know it's the Belgian people, like, where this is starting. So they're not going to be looking for the the runner of the comet line in France. Okay, yeah. Is she, she's putting some distance between where she's operating and then where she's living. Exactly. Okay. Her father, Ferdinand, took over... Wait, what? What? He's still alive? I don't know yeah, why I but assumed I had, he was I had, dead. I had her as... I had his her dad as Friedrich. So my sources give her dad different names. Which let's, is let's just call him Freddie. Yeah, Freddie. What's up, Freddie? So yeah, her dad is still alive. And he's still, like, living in Belgium. So he kind of takes over her duties. Like, she's still running the comment line, but he's, like, I'll kind of coordinate things on this end. Yeah, he he's, like, um, he's the satellite office in Belgium. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so the men would go from Brussels to her, um, in, you know, on the French border and then she would get them to safe houses and then get them to the Spanish border. And, you know, so like she was, she was still a like a very active part of it. Cause basically they, by train, they went from Brussels to France and then she would meet them, put them in safe houses and then they would, you know, go the rest of the way. Yeah. And over the mountains. I just can't get over that. I'm like, Jesus. You know what? That was always the part of Sound of Music that blew my mind. I was like, wait, these people had to climb over mountains. And then the way the movie's set up, it takes them like 10 minutes and they get to the other side. And like, I think one of them's carrying the littlest yeah, kid. I'm yep. like, how long did that last? Because I'd put your ass down and be like, walk, bitch. Real quick, yeah. <laughs> but then they're just like, oh, cool. We're here and everything's fine. And I'm like, okay, how did you not lose one of them right just or like a toe or, or a, something you know, yeah it's like you didn't bring that much food they make it look maybe like the this Pyrenees are smaller strong. than i like maybe there's like a well, small chunk and somewhere see, in in the sound of music did they cross the pyrenees or was it the alps they crossed well where, i don't know where, what they crossed i don't know what country that was in fuck julie andrews tweet us let us know what is the plot of the sound of music <laughs> But that was, and obviously it's a musical. It's not meant to, you know, give a real picture. But even as a kid, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's how easy it was just crossing over like a hill and you're safe. So they went from Austria to Switzerland. So that would be the Alps, right? Yeah. The, Which, Swiss, the Swiss Alps. Okay. Anyways, so while she's coordinating all of this, she's still taking people herself. Like, she's yeah. still making the trek herself. So she, in late 1941, she takes two different groups, one of three airmen. Um, 
so she takes three in October, three in November, and two in December. So totaling 11 in all of 1941. Um, and that level of activity, kind of like three groups every month or so, continued pretty steadily until 1942. And she's not the only one escorting them either. You know, she's right. making the trek when she can. But obviously, if she's out there trekking with one group, they're not going to like be like, you have to wait. Yeah. You know. You know, she's still out there. Well, and you have to make sure that you're not taking people too frequently and drawing a lot of attention to yourself. Because otherwise, someone's going to notice. It's so weird. I keep seeing people over here in these small groups. I wonder what they're up to. Right. Hmm. And like I, what I said happened is exactly what happened. That she, once she had successfully crossed into Spain, she would basically give the airmen to whoever from the British government was waiting um, they would take them, you know, into, into Spain where they could, you know, go home, you know, find an airport, go home. Meanwhile, while that was happening, Dee Dee would go and meet with the diplomats to get her money and go home. You know, she's See, just like, that's the other thing. Me. She has to walk all the way back. She has to make the trip twice for every like group. She exactly. Saves. And so, and then as she would return home, she would kind of not necessarily disperse the money, but like help people stock up on food and reinforce like their houses and stuff like that. Like, so she would work on the way there and then on the way back. She's like a TV show where like every episode she stops in another small town and helps out with her money. (laughs) Yep. And so she paid whatever necessary expenses. Although it is, it is important to note that like the members of the comment line, unless they had jobs outside of that, they weren't getting like paid to do this. No, no, no. They weren't like, um, what do they call them? Coyotes. Who like take people from Mexico yep. across the yeah. border to the United States? They're not getting States. paid for this. Or there are people who um, there are networks that help people get out of North Korea, and they cost a fuck ton of money. And sometimes right. they don't do shit, and you die, right. and they take your money and go. So between 1941 and 1942, estimates vary of how many trips Dee Dee actually made. It's somewhere between about 16 to 24 round trips. Good God. Um, the number of um, people she escorted, mostly airmen, because that's really who you were getting a lot of, was somewhere in the, the number of 118. Mm-hmm. So she helped well over 100 people. Wow. Even just helping one person, you know, is right. incredible. But then for her to do this over and over and over. Right. So after November 1942, when southern France became occupied, because until so what happened for those little World War II knowledge for maybe some of our younger audience. The Germans invaded France and then got to like Paris and then got stuck. So they only had, they were only occupying Northern France for like a almost two years. And then when Paris eventually fell, they were able to occupy the rest of France. See, I didn't know that. I always just heard like, oh, and then Germany invaded France. Yeah, no, they invaded like the north of France (laughs) and kind of got stuck at Paris. And then even though they could have just like gone around Paris, but they didn't. I don't know. Well, Paris is a a huge. It's a big city. It's strategically important. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's strategically important. Um, So in November of 1942, that's when um, the Nazis were able to occupy all of France. So they, they invaded Southern France. How dare um, they ruin the so South of point, France for us? All of, exactly. All of France is under Nazi rule at this point. So that made transporting people significantly harder. Cause now instead of, you know, just having to get through like half of Belgium and then half of France, and then you're kind of free and clear. Now you're literally traversing like 
two whole countries. Yeah. Well, and there there's no safe borders nearby. You are literally surrounded. Right. And you all, I mean, and you have to realize that this was, this is very active. World War II was a very active war. And during this time, different members of the Comet line and different groups making these crossings were picked off, you know, or picked up and, you know, they were betrayed all the time, basically. Well, when you covered Virginia Hall quite a while ago, we were talking about how it was like the majority of people she worked with were eventually captured and or killed. I I mean, it was like, what, an 80% capture death rate or something? So hundreds of these airmen and other people working for the Comet Line were arrested throughout these years. Um, Some were executed, some were deported to German prisons, and some were deported Mm. to concentration camps. Um, So in January of 1943, Didi was leading three British airmen south by train from Paris to Saint-Jean-de-Luz, which is another city in France. It's in the south of France. That's where I'm going to vacation if I ever go. I was going to say, can we go there together? Um, <laughs> from the railway station, they walked in the rain for two hours to get to um, a village, which was just in like the French countryside, which was the last stop before crossing over the Pyrenees. So they met up with the man that was going to take them over the mountains, who was a smuggler. His name was Florentino. I'm not even going to pronounce his last name. It is G O I K O E T X E A. Joie. I don't know. Joie de um, But he, so he was a smuggler. And he, so he was like not really well liked by police on either side, but he helped out, you know, this group. Um, however, They couldn't make the crossing right away because the river on the border was flooded and it was much too dangerous to cross. Mm. So their guide like went to go spend a night like with friends. Um, And Didi and the airmen kind of bunkered down in the safe house. So they were going to try again the next day, January 15th, 1943, Didi, the three airmen, and the person whose house they were staying in, whose name was, Frontoxia usandizanga. Linguistic butchery. That is our brand. Only when it's French. <laughs> and most other languages. <laughs> Even English. Right. Um, so the five of them got arrested. The smuggler mm. didn't because he was at another house, but yeah. it wasn't him that turned them in. Right. He they, just they was were in betrayed. the right place at the right time. Right. They were betrayed by a farm worker that worked in that town named Donato, who Didi knew and didn't trust at all. Okay. Um, but he must have found out they were there and turned them in. What a fucking dick. Right? So Didi at first was sent to the, the Fresnes prison in Paris, where she was sent to a French prison, and eventually to Ravensbrück concentration camp, uh. and then Mothhausen. She was inter- interrogated as she's moving to place to place. She was interrogated a total of 19 times. Oh, my God. By both the Gestapo, which are like the secret police, and then the... Abwehr, which is like the German military police. So she's like getting um um she's interviewed by both sides. So she got 19 times by the Abwehr and then she was interviewed interrogated twice by the Gestapo. Mm. She admitted to being the leader of the Comet line to protect her father. Um but the Germans didn't believe her. Because she's this small, skinny woman who kind of looked almost like a miner. Yeah. They- and they were like minor 
O-R, not E-R, just for the audience. Yeah, um, like, you're a literal child. Right, and they're like, there's there's no fucking Which way. is crazy, because they had no problems, like, executing kids oh, yeah. who were... No, it was terrible. ...getting in their way. However, this underestimation of Dee Dee's importance and her abilities is probably what saved her life. Oh, thank you, God. I love, I love when sexism saves the day. Right. It's just like, ha, your own bullshit right. saved someone else, you ass. So when she was in the Ravensbrück concentration camp, the Gestapo actually like realized like, oh shit, no, she is, like she said it, but she actually is the person. Yeah. And so they tried to find her, but she was able to like hide her identity and kind of like just blend in with the other prisoners. So oh they never found her. Oh my God. Well, even you- though she like, they had her, but they weren't able to like execute her because she just blended in. Okay. I'm imagining... A typical concentration camp where they're in the stripe. Yeah, they shave their prison heads. outfits. They shave the heads Everyone and all looks that. The same. I'm like, yeah. It was very dehumanizing. You bastards. Kind of glad that came back to bite you in the ass, at least right. in one way. I, that's, I mean, I'm, here's the thing. I'm really glad because it sounds like she lives, but like, it's just so fucking weird, you know? Yeah. So. Um, the three airmen that was a- arrested with her all survived the war mm. um, in their POW camps. Thank However, God. the person that owned the house was beaten to death by a guard. God damn it! Shortly before the camp was liberated. Motherfucker! Um, but most importantly to this story anyways, Dee Dee survived the concentration camps. During her stay, she did become gravely ill and was super undernourished, but she survived until the Allied advance on April 1945 when they hit Ravensbrook and, you know, saved her and many others, you know, but many of her colleagues died. Her father ended up dying as well. He was arrested in 1943 and executed in 1944. God damn it. Yeah. However, the comet line continued to function even when Dee Dee was in the concentration camps. Um, It is said that they helped more than 700 allied soldiers reach safety during the entire war. Um, And the smuggler that didn't get caught continued to help the comet line as well. And he would guide the wounded and captured um, over the mountains until he was also captured by the Germans, but then he was rescued by the grief family. Oh yay. The griefs. So, um, <laughs> oh my God. I as well, that them. ends well for the smuggler, I guess. Yeah. Um, so after the war, Dee, Dee you know, obviously took some time, but she actually did go back to nursing and she would go on to work with lepers. Oh, Dee, Dee bless your heart. She first started wor- working in the Belgian Congo, moved to Cameroon, and then next Addis Ababa, working with, with the lepers in different areas. This girl did not slow down. No. Uh, while she was working in Ethiopia, her mother was on her deathbed in Belgium. And in a measure of respect, the Royal Air Force made an unscheduled stop to pick her up and bring her back to Elgium, Belgium to see her mother and then actually laid her, later brought her back to Ethiopia. So they're like, you know what? You helped us out so many times. Let us repay this favor. I'm going to cry. Like, and it doesn't even sound like she, from the stories I read, it doesn't even sound like she asked. They were, they like, they like heard they about somehow it. somehow found out about it and were like, 
get on the fucking plane. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Can I just say that the fact that they remembered this one person helping them out during such a massive conflict and they're like, no, no, no. This lady's mother's dying. We got a plane. Let's fucking do this. Right. Oh my it's so nice. God. So when she was in the leper leper colony of Kahat. Coquille Hotville. She met an English novelist that was staying there. Not sure why. Um, his name was Graham Green. And Green recorded her account of her war experience in his journal, which was later um, published. And it's called In Search of a Ch- Character, Two African Journals. So if you want to read that, there she's in that. Um, and he wrote, he asked her why she had come to the Congo. And she replied, quote, because from the age of 15, I wanted to cure lepers. If I had delayed any longer, it would have been too late. I love she just wanted to help people. Right. And that she was inspired by another woman who tragically died, trying to do the same thing that she managed to do in the next worldwide conflict. Right. It's almost like she picked up the torch that Edith, was forced to drop exactly. and she's like, let's do this. I'm, I'm, st- I'm going to walk for you, Edith. Exactly. It's beautiful. Oh my God. Why is this not a movie? I know. I'm um, going to bitch cry. As she got older her, and her health declined, uh, a colleague and a friend of hers named Teresa Dewell convinced her to go back to Germ- Belgium and they went back together. And so she, you know, went home. Um, she was awarded the United States Medal of Freedom with Golden Palms, which is... I don't know what the golden palms are, but it's extra special. Yeah. That's like <laughs> the highest level a civilian can get. I think. Yeah. Um, she got the British George medal and this is, she got all of these while she was still alive, which is great. Um, she also became a chevalier of the French Legion d'honneur, which is Ooh. like the French version of fanciness. <laughs> um, and she also was granted an honorary rank of Luter- Lieutenant Colonel in the Belgian army and was made a countess in 1895. Oh my God. So she became Belgian nobility, even though she was out in the world curing lepers. She is the smuggling countess. So she went back and she kind of just lived quietly when she went back to Belgium. You know, she was getting older. She was sick. Um, and Countess DD died in on October 13th, 2007 at the age of 90. Oh my God. That was not that long ago. No. Oh my God. So she died in Brussels and her service was held, um, in Brussels, and she was inter- interred in the, in her family crypt with her parents at Cherbique Cemetery. And it's so sad because I bet her father was there and he had been killed during the war for helping people and just, oh, right. God. And I mean, I don't have a legacy section because I feel like it really wasn't needed. But her like, legacy she, lives in every in single that person she, she survive. saved yeah, and exactly. their families and loved ones and their descendants. And yeah, I just, I love that, you know, we, we talk about sexism and how it hurts so many people in this one time it saved someone's life. I think that's so interesting, especially in war stories like Virginia Hall, um, the, uh, oh God, why are their names? The sisters who seduced and killed Nazis. Uh, truce and Overstein sisters. Yes. Um, but you see this in times of war where women are underestimated because of sexism and then they weaponize that right. in the well, coolest I lo- I ways. I love that she was super honest. She was like, yeah, I'm the runner of the comment and line. They're like, Bullshit. And, yeah, and they're like, there's <laughs> no way. And then they realized it and she was like, no, fuck you. You had me and you let me go and now I'm not going to let you have me back. Spreck and Z bullshit. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
But yeah, like I I came across just like a a snippet of her story and I was like, I just like kind of fell in love with her. And um, my final thing is um, a British colonel that she saved would later call her pure heroine of legend. With an E. With an E. (laughs) Pure heroine of legend. My God. Okay. Let's let's just like really quickly do some abstract math on this. So the comet line you said helped around 700, 700 people. soldiers, yeah. Um and she herself helped over 100 people. Yeah. So let's just take the 100 people. Let's say all those 100 people had kids. That's 200 people. And then they all have kids. Like there are so many Hundreds. people in the world today yeah. that would not even exist had it not been for Dee Dee and people like her. Cause she was not the only one doing this kind of thing. It was a lot of these like independent networks. And she got to like, like put it all together. Yeah. But then even like there, there have been so many other people we've talked about who helped like save people, whether they be civilians or soldiers during war and that kind of thing. And it's like, man, the number of people saved by civilians who were just like, well, this is bullshit. I'm not going to let you die. Right. Is astounding. Like, yeah, she had some nurse training, but it's like, that doesn't help you get over a fucking mountain. It doesn't help you evade German soldiers and capture. And the, what you said, the two other people who helped her, like, found the comet line. One of them was executed and the, the, other and the other one was, was in, in prison yep. for the rest of the war. And I mean, it kind of sounds like he probably made it out, but fuck man he did not have a good time for at least a year longer than she was yeah and i mean she was in there she got captured in 1943 and they weren't i mean she was in there for two years because they liberated the well i actually don't know where raven's ravensbrook is but 1945 is when the war ended and they were liberating concentration camps good god so i was gonna say the french concentration camp but then i'm like i actually don't know if ravensbrook where that one was yeah well, and then illness was such a killer. Like when, when you talked about how she got sick and all that, I was like, oh no, because I think it was Anne Frank. She contracted tuberculosis and oh, yeah. died. It was real what, bad. like a month or less before the concentration camp she was in was liberated? So Ravensbrück was uh, an exclusively female German concentration camp about 56 miles north of Berlin near a town called Ravensbrück because the Nazis were not creative. Did Andre Burrell go there? And like the other women she was working with? Just because Ravensbrück sounds really familiar. And like just the all-female concentration camp thing sounds very familiar. I mean, I don't think that was the only one, but let me double check. So while I'm looking this up, Emily... What are you thankful for? Well, fuck that. I didn't have to live through any of that shit. Seriously. Like every yeah. time we dive into world war one or two, I'm like, God, people, people lived through this, endured this, experienced this and survived it. And not everyone did. And just, I cannot even begin to conceptualize that kind of horror because I am living a very privileged life. And I'm thankful for that. Um, but I'm also thankful for in a more, you know, realistic, you know, centered space uh jerry and i got to go to colorado recently um and it was one of those things where we both just really need something to look forward to especially like with the depression and anxiety and uh i was very anxious because jared is not 
really big on flying, uh, but I was not going to drive there. <laughs> and so he, he, he managed to, to, you know, endure. And it was actually a really nice trip. It was pretty relaxed. Uh, and I got to go to the Molly Brown house and I covered her super cool. many episodes ago. And God, it was so cool. And one of the neatest things about it. So we get there. And first of all, one of the tour guides had this black mask with like a like white lace around the top fringe. And I look at her, I'm like, I love your mask. And she's like, oh, a bunch of us got them after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And I was like, oh my God, let me tell you about the night that I found out Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Me and my bestie were recording a podcast (laughs) about women's history. Um, And then there was another tour guide that we ran into. And she was an older woman and she looked very like, kind of like what I want to be when I'm an older woman, like very whimsical and eclectic, but also like very confident and like, yes, this is me and everyone has to deal with it. And she had a cat mask on because her cat had just died and she was like honoring her cat. I'm like, ma'am, be my grandma. (laughs) Right. But she was telling me that, She had been working there since she was like 17 or 18 years old, like back in the 70s when they first opened the house up to tourists. And because of COVID, you know, the tour guides were not really conducting proper tours. It was more of just like managing crowd control. Like, okay, there's so many people in this room, so you have to wait in this room. And then when they move to the next one, then you can go in, that kind of thing. Right. And she was like, yeah, they just kind of wants to stand here and not say anything, but I'm not fucking doing that. And I'm like, yes. So she's like, so if you have any questions, let me know. And I'm like, what is your favorite thing in this house? And immediately she shows us uh, Molly Brown's daughter's room and the big four-posted bed with like the very dramatic drapes and everything. And she said that that bed was original. Like all the other beds in the house were recreations, but that one was fucking original. And she's like, it's, it's, it's dramatic and it's beautiful and it's real. And I'm like, I love you. And I got to see uh, Molly Brown's favorite room. And off of that room is a balcony where I guess she would go and stand out and yodel every morning because she learned how to yodel in Germany. I'm like, I didn't fucking know that. Molly, honey, I love you. And there were so many photos of her in the house. And in every photo, she just looked like, I know I'm better than you. And you know it Which too. Which is <laughs> Like, she has such sass energy. And of course, I got Kelly a magnet of Molly Brown presenting an award to the captain of the Carpathia for saving all the Titanic people. So, so Andre Burrell, not this one. Okay, yeah. Um, and like the four women she was captured with, no, that she was they were killed at um not Nazweiler Struthoff concentration camp, which was a French one, and it was not. It was a male one, so they were remember because they were shocked to see women. That's right. That's right. I briefly looked up um, Ravensbrook and I didn't recognize any of like the famous names that went through there. Okay. I don't know why but that just like God. struck a, they, struck a chord. Um, Dee Dee was very lucky because it said as the allies got closer and this was common for a lot of the concentration camps, they had every single healthy woman line up and basically took them on a death march. Yep. Um, and so she actually got really lucky that she was malnourished because they left her. I mean, the people that survived 
the death march did, were rescued just a few hours later because they didn't get very far. Thank but God. it was a lot of women well, it, that they took with them. And I mean, because this was a women's only concentration camp, they also had a lot of children. Oh, God. Can you imagine how much sexual assault was going on there? I would rather not. Yeah. But well, it, it yes. makes me think of um, the memoir Night by Ellie Weissel. And there's a there's a part in that that memoir where they're being forced to run through the woods in the snow. And again, they're just in their like oh, yeah. striped death, death prison outfits. And basically, if anyone deviated from this like thin line of they people, they were shot. If you fell, you were shot to make sure you fucking died. If yeah. you if you were too slow. And these are people who have been malnourished and yep. abused and worked near the brink of death. And then they're told, run well, as fast the, as you can for 20 miles. The reason that they did it, at least in Ravensbrook, the reason they put took anyone they could, because one, they the reason they left like the malnourished people behind, they were like, okay, they'll die before they get rescued god and so they took all the healthy people because they didn't want to leave behind witnesses oh of course not i'm actually surprised they didn't just line everyone up and right yeah because they were the it, the because, nazis yeah, it, were it even said they had a separate camp for like gassing people and yeah. yeah that they were hastily starting to gas people because that's what they were doing like yeah. they were like oh we can't have people know what we did and it's like people are gonna know anyways well, I mean, you know, there are all these Holocaust deniers out there who are like, I don't know, it just doesn't add up. I'm like, fuck you. Can you imagine surviving something like that? And then some asshole who spent 10 minutes on some conspiracy website oh, yeah. goes, I don't believe you. It's like, wow, fuck off. Like my fuck entire fucking right family now. died. Fuck you. Yeah. Just Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. Kelly, what are you thankful for? Because I'm all mad now. I'm sorry. Um... <laughs> What am I thankful for? What happened this week? I don't know. It was a, I was telling Emily earlier, it was kind of like a weird week where like the beginning of the week was really slow and then it got really busy, but it's that like shitty busy where it's like, it doesn't engage your brain at all. Yeah. So that was rough. Um, so I guess I'm glad the week is over. I'm trying to think like what else? Oh, I'm thankful that last weekend I was able to go up and we were, we saw Justin's nephew and we, um, with his parents, the nephew's parents, mm -hmm. so Justin's brother, um, we went and we took his nephew to the zoo for the first time. It was just Como. And yeah, like they have the whole, like you have to reserve a time slot and then yeah. like, so there's only so many people and you can only go like one way, which is very interesting. And I, the zoo is a free zoo, so it's not like huge. Um, but it was a lot of fun and he's like just the right age. Cause he's like, I think a year and a half, um, so he's like just the right age that he's getting excited about everything. So it was really cute. And so I'm just really thankful that I guess they let us be the ones to experience that with them. Cause like I said, it was his first yeah. time at the zoo. And so like, I'm thankful that we got to go up and see them and you know, that things are subsiding enough that we could go see them and hang out. Um, and then that they like, let me have that experience, which was a lot of fun. We That's also did hot sweet. pot in their backyard. What's hot pot. So traditionally it's like you would go to like a table and it would be similar to like a big table. Like, uh, when you go to like Jibachi. a Japanese steakhouse, Okay, but instead of like having a grill in the middle, it has like a big pot of oil and like whatever seasonings you choose. And then you get like raw meat and shellfish and you put it in the oil and then you take it out when it's done cooking and you eat it. It's almost like meat fondue. You stick the meat in, it yeah. cooks and then you eat and it. And so we did that at their house cause they have, um, they brew. So they have like a, a brew pot and like a burner that sits outside. Um, and that's how Atari burned her whiskers. <laughs> oh 
no. She got like, we were trying to like manage the dogs and she just like walks straight next to the thing. And then we all look and we're like, well, she's a little singed. Oh shit. I mean, she didn't hurt herself, but like, we were like, God, you're such an idiot dog. Ooh. Um, but so we did that and that was a lot of fun because we were originally going to go out to do that. But then we were like, Hey, we'll just do it at home. So it was a good weekend. Can I say something else I'm really thankful for that actually happened this week versus like three weeks ago? Yes. So uh, my dad had to have a stent put in his heart uh, several months ago. I think I talked about it on the podcast. I yeah, can't I remember. So. Um, and it was one of those things where he was going to go in and they were going to determine if he needed a stent or a yeah, full on bypass. Yep. And the stent was definitely the less extreme of the two. But he's recently graduated from like cardio rehab and he's been doing a lot of walking. His... His assignment is to get 30 minutes of exercise in five to seven days a week, which I'm like, shit, I don't think I do that. But usually when I go to the gym, I'm there for like an hour plus. I mean, it's <laughs> three like to four days a week. Him and your fame. mom could like walk around the neighborhood. Well, he's or, been doing a lot know. of stuff on the treadmill. And so the other day, my car's out of commission. So he stopped by to drop something Aww. off. And he's you, actually, he's oh, he's amazing. But he uh, is actually a member at my gym but has not been there yet. I think he's a little anxious. Like he's been vaccinated, but just with COVID and also, you know, going to a new gym is a little intimidating and he's got the right. treadmill at home. I think it's just a lot easier for him to like stay home and do his exercise. Did you go to the gym with your dad? I, so I suggested it. I was like, Hey, my car's not working. So I have no way to go to the gym. So how about tomorrow you either pick me up and we can go to the gym or we can go on a walk. Well, we end up going on a walk together Aww. and we walked like five fucking K. Nice. Yeah. I took the cheese with me <laughs> and actually one of the cheese, his, his nails need to get done and one of his new claws broke. So I had to carry him like Aww. the last yeah. bit home. But I mean, it's, but it's it was nice that really like, when good. you get into that like rhythm and you're talking with someone and you don't even realize how far you've walked. Yeah. But like he, he's lost, he's lost a bunch of weight, like doing the cardio rehab and oh, even before he was in that. And I'm just really proud of him for sticking to it and taking his health seriously because he's overcome a lot of health challenges in his life and right. made a lot of positive changes over the years. Oh, and this good. is just kind of like the next step in that. And it was really nice to get to see him. I'm fully vaccinated. He's fully vaccinated. So us being able to do that together and right. Like, and just spend that time together and, without needing to like wear masks or be like overburdened or anything. Yeah, That's it really was, nice. it was really nice. And it was good quality time with my dad that I knew was good for both of us. So That's good. I'm thankful for that. And that he graduated from cardio rehab. Yay. Yay. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHPAD, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where I actually put up show notes the other day, but Emily didn't ever note, so it's just mine. Um, well, that's because you haven't put them up since episode 50. <laughs> yeah, I just did it the other day. That's what I do during class now when I don't have to pay attention. I hope her professors are not listening. Kelly's awkward smile. Um, so, and then our email is whinyaboutherstory at gmail.com. Or you can submit something through our website, which is what Mama Meg did. And I don't think Emily's seen it because she never checks our email. Oh, shit. I didn't. But yeah, so like uh, there are people that message us through the website and that works just fine. We still get it. Um, otherwise, yeah, you can email us directly. And we honestly, would, we would love to hear from you. We also have a Patreon, so you could con contact us on that. You can join for as little as $1. And we do 
dives into different things in women's history that we call herstory happenings. And then we try to do a video episode once a month. We're a little bit behind on that because as we said at the beginning, new camera bullshit recording capabilities. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also have merch at teespring.com whining about herstory. You can also get there through our website. Yes. We have a link tree on all of our social meets. Um, um, that has like all the links to our website, our other social medias, our merch, anything. Please rate us five stars wherever you listen. It really helps us. It costs you nothing and it gives us warm fuzzies. Yes, and it helps other people find us too. Also, if you're a patron, you might be seeing a picture of Drunk Kelly soon because that has been requested, which I'm very happy about. <laughs> I'm like, I'm oh not. my God, they listened and they wanted it. Right. But yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.